uh, along the... Oh, it's a, it's a strange part of the world. That little long line of sliver of ground called the Gaza Strip. Do you want to hear about the Gaza Strip? No little incident that occurred to me on the Gaza Strip. Well, all right. Uh, now now we're getting out of the way here. Okay? So here's the Gaza Strip. It's up like this. And way down here at this tip, as Israel goes on further on down, down here at the end of this little triangle, right down at the narrowest tip end, is a tiny settlement called Eilat. E-I-L-A-T. Or Eilat, if you prefer it that way. Generally pronounced by the people in that area as Eilat. Eilat is an ancient, ancient uh, site. Uh, in fact, right now, they're doing a lot of uh, excavating in that area. By the way, in case you don't know, uh, uh, the uh, historical background to this part of the world, about 15 miles from Eilat, uh, as the crow flies, and just a little bit to the left if you're moving up the map, about 15 miles, maybe 20 miles, is the site that is generally considered to be the site of King Solomon's mines. Uh, King Solomon uh, had uh, a whole mining operation going on in that area. And uh, perhaps you don't know it, but uh, what King Solomon mined in his mines, he didn't mine gold, he mined copper. Uh, copper was the precious metal of that area. And I'll tell you this, the area of King Solomon's mines looks like one of the great ravaged areas of the world. <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, it, it looks like a, a cover drawing for uh, a science fiction story of something out of one of the more uh, desolate planets. The rock rises directly out of the sand, just rises sheer out of the sand, and stands up, uh, oh, maybe, uh, I'd say, 500 feet into the air, rises directly out of the flat sand of the, of the Negev Desert. And there is a rock mountain range that is totally desolate, that extends for, oh, uh, hundreds of hundreds of miles and feet off into the far horizon. And right at the foot of this is this great dusty cavern with great roaring, roaring uh, round billows of greenish-gray dust that's flying up high into the air. In fact, when you're about ten miles away from King Solomon's Mines, you see this mushroom cloud in the sky. Now, the sky of the of the Negev Desert is about as clear and brilliant a sky as you can imagine. In fact, the sky is so bright in the Negev that it's difficult to even look at it. Remember, this is a, this is a tropical world there. It's more than a tropical world. It is an arid desert world, which means that the humidity of that countryside uh, probably averages down around 3 or 4% humidity. And you breathe this air in, it's, uh, it's, such, uh, co it's such cold air at night and such hot air during the day that at any time when you breathe it in, you know that you're breathing in something special. It, uh, is it great for sinuses? If you've, got, <laughs> if you've got sinus trouble, you spend about uh, 10 days standing in the sun in the uh, Negev Desert, and I'll tell you, if you've got sinuses left, you're lucky. Uh, you'll be boiled down to a little grease spot. But that old sun lays down there, and, and when you approach King Solomon's mines, uh, you can see a kind of mushroom cloud in the sky. And it's the mining operation that's going on there. They're mining right there at that point at this time of day right now. And uh, they're, they're dragging all this, uh, this copper ore out of the ground. And, of course, there's a tremendous cloud of dust. Uh, copper mining is not one of the cleaner types of mining. And uh, I understand there's a lot of health hazards involved in copper mining, although I've never mined much copper. But uh, this is the area and this is the place where King Solomon 
made his biggest scenes. Now, <laughs> as you as you approach it, though, you see this peculiar gray green. It looks like a, uh, an atom bomb, kind of. It's just a little soft gray green mushroom cloud, and that's where these poor guys are mining copper in that fantastic sun. Now, uh, standing right next to King Solomon's mines are these three huge pillars of stone. They are they are really scary. They're they're a dark red color. I'd say they're almost a cordovan leather color, dark red color, and they they rise directly out of the dust. And oh boy, is that dust dusty! Uh, this is not desert sand right at this point because this is uh, an area that's rich in minerals of one kind or another, and it's kind of a grayish blackish brownish sand and it rises directly out of that sand and boom up it goes rises up and it, it goes right to the sky these three huge pillars of rock uh is there anybody who's ever been in uh, in that area uh it uh, right now it's it slips my mind what they call those three pillars uh it's like solomon's towers solomon's pillars something like that but they're very frightening, and the, the three pillars go back into a long, thin, narrow cave, and as you stand out on the plain, maybe a half a mile from it, and you just holler anything, you can holler, Hey, Queen of Sheba, ho! It echoes for about five minutes, although it's a repeating echo. It goes, Queen of Sheba, Queen of Sheba, Queen of Sheba, Queen of Sheba, oh, Queen of Sheba. And you can hear it echoing on and on in that spooky horizon and always every time i went past that place which was about three times the uh, up in the sky circling against the sun are four or five enormous desert vultures just circling great big vultures circling around spinning waiting for something to die waiting for something to give up uh this is this is a sight you quite often see in the desert are uh, these uh these buzzards or these they're they're vultures really great big soaring birds just spinning up down the sun and they're just waiting for something to turn over and give up and they spin and apparently enough things do uh, for them to survive they look pretty fat they just keep spinning up there in the sun well if you continue straight on south in that country you strike this little tiny settlement called a lot laying right on the red sea now, why do they call the Red Sea red? Uh, uh, have you ever, have you ever, uh, you know, wonder why this? Well, there, there is, there's a reason why they call the Red Sea red, and uh, it, it has to do with the way the sun strikes the water and reflects off the mountains that rim the sea right down there in that area. Uh, a lot is on a long, narrow tip, the end of the Red Sea, and by the way, they call that area down there the end of the world. In fact, there is a little restaurant there called The End of the World. And I stayed in this hotel. You imagine, what a, what a great name for a hotel. The Queen of Sheba Hotel. <laughs> the Queen of Sheba Hotel. And the reason they call it the Queen of Sheba is this is her neighborhood. This is where the Queen of Sheba came ashore. Uh, the Queen of Sheba landed at a lot when she was on a ceremonial state visit to visit King Solomon. And this is where the Queen of Sheba met King Solomon. <laughs> right there on that, on that spot is the Queen of Sheba Hotel. And they've got, as you walk into the Queen of Sheba Hotel, and the, the one great thing you like about it is that it's air-conditioned. Oh, boy, let me tell you, after you've gone through that shimmering desert heat for about 300 miles as you've driven down through 
this uh, this uh, arid world with the sun, with the heat, with the buzzards, uh, with that rising grayish-green smoke cloud of King Solomon's mines. And when you step into that air conditioning, it is like stepping into heaven. And directly ahead of you is a mural, big mural, that shows the Queen of Sheba landing in her state barge. <laughs> and she's getting out of her state barge, and she's surrounded by Nubian hand serpents and giant lions on leashes and all that stuff and a great big sail and everything. And she is stepping off ashore, and there greeting her is a fantastic entourage headed by King Solomon. Now, there's a lot of talk. As, as a matter of fact, I might as well be honest with you tonight, Matt. There is a lot of terrible uh, gossip about King Solomon and Queen of Sheba. That there was a lot more than state talk that went on between those two. I'm I'm not trying to uh, I'm not trying to be irreverent here, but they still talk around them. There's a lot of people don't even discuss them, even in this, at this time and age in that neighborhood. It's an awful scene. And uh, they, she stepped ashore right there. Well, about ten minutes after I got into the hotel, the Queen of Sheba Hotel, I am now down on the beach. Now, the beach itself is not particularly imposing, although there is one thing about this beach that is like no other beach that I've ever been on in my life. As you stand on the beach, you can see four countries. Now, you can not only see four countries, you can, if you want to, if you've if you, if you got a long enough reach, if you're, say, like Wilt Chamberlain, you can reach out and touch four countries. This is not now looking at the 16 miles away, and they say, see the little line over in the hills, and that's it. It, it is though you're, lie, you're lying right on a bay, a long arm, a bay of this, the, the Red Sea. And don't let me forget to tell you why the Red Sea is called Red. Now, off to your left, as you stand looking out to sea, off to your left, you see the hills of Jordan, the edges that the Moab Mountains run right down to the sea, you know, the famous Moab Mountains of, of biblical fame, M-O-A-B. They, they come rolling down... These are high, rolling, angry-looking mountains. They're not, they're not benign-looking mountains. They're rolling, angry, red mountains. They come rolling right down to the sea. That's Jordan. And then if you move your eyes slightly to the right and follow it, you're looking at Saudi Arabia. Now, you're standing, if you look directly down, you're standing on Israel. And then, as you look to the right, just off around the edge, just past that stand over there where they're selling the hot dogs, that is Egypt. Right there. Okay, you got the scene? And directly ahead of you are these soft, low waves rolling in on this sandy beach. This is the beach where the Queen of Sheba's barge pulled up into the gravel. And King Solomon stepped down and greeted her. Okay? Uh, speaking of mythological figures, oh, this is WNAC AM and WRKO FM in Boston. Uh, of course, mythological figures uh, uh, walk around that area just about... Oh, that's another thing I don't think I've mentioned yet about uh, about the people uh, who live in, uh, in the Negev Desert region. Do you know that uh, history to them, and I'm talking about biblical history, did, did you know that one of the big things that occurs in the Middle East, and in particular in Israel, every year is this giant... Uh, a biblical contest. Did you ever hear of that, Mac? They have a contest for guys who who get on the radio uh, to to answer questions about the Bible. Now they they uh, they treat the Bible uh, almost strictly as history, and uh, the questions are are fantastic, absolutely incredible. For example, they'll say, uh, 
How many times is the word fish mentioned in the Bible? And the guy will say uh, 47 times, if you include the time that they mention sturgeon twice. Uh, <laughs> I'll raise my hand to help you. And these guys come from all over the world to compete. And you know that uh, last year there was a fantastic hassle in the courts. Uh, almost every year a, uh, a guy from that area wins because uh, the biblical world is so much part of their world uh, that they are like people who live, say, around Gettysburg. Uh, they know all about the Battle of Gettysburg. They can point out where this happened, where uh, Charlie Brown charged, and where where uh, Fred fell over twice, and his horse stumbled, and they point out everything, every last thing. Well, in this area, uh, it, it's a little eerie. At first, as an American, you can't quite get used to it. These people talk about the Bible and about biblical names and about biblical incidents as though they're living and as though they really uh, kind of are contemporary. It's, it's very eerie. They'll say, well, I see over there, uh, there's where uh, Lot's wife, you see, they walked up there, and <laughs> I mean, it just, it, you just can't quite believe it. Then you say, oh, come on now, stop it. What do you mean? Uh, Samson. I said, well, yeah, Samson. Now, he lived over there. Now, uh, di didn't I tell you that the, the first five minutes I'm in this country, I stop in a gas station. It's called Samson's Inn, the gas station. And I looked out of the car. I couldn't believe it. I'm with this guy from Israel, and I said, Samson's Inn. Uh, you mean the Samson? He says, yes, Samson. Samson and Delilah. And I said, Samson and Delilah? Well, why do they call it Samson's Inn here? He said, well, this is his old neighborhood. <laughs> uh, you know, you never, you never think of Samson's old neighborhood. You know, one of the local boys that made good. He made it big, you know. And uh, Delilah, oh, they talk about Jezebel. They talk about all these people as though they are, in a sense, uh, of people who lived in the neighborhood a few years ago and you know, there's still a lot of rumors about them, and there's still a lot of talk and a lot of stories. And you know, they, oh, it's 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 this living thing. So when you're walking around there, and oh, another thing, don't ever, if you think you know anything, if you once went to Sunday school for five times or something like that, don't ever try to say anything about the Bible to anybody in any of that area around there because it'll embarrass the heck out of you. You'll find instantly you don't know anything about it. And so uh, I'm, with, I'm with this guy, and he keeps saying things like, uh, of course, uh, you remember the uh, legend of uh, Ezekiel and Josephus. That is Josephus II and, Israel, and Ezekiel III. Uh, you remember the legend of the tailor shop and the three-legged donkey. Uh, and I say, well, no. He says, well, that was in the second book of... Uh, and he goes on, and, you know, I just, uh, after a while, you just sit there and you sort of nod with your, with your mouth hanging open. Well, in the Red Sea district now, this is where it really begins to get serious. And uh, I'm sitting in the hotel one morning, and I was there a couple of days at this point, and uh, I wander out on the uh, on the sun porch, and the sun is beating down. And uh, I hear a couple of guys arguing. And what do you think they're arguing about? And they are like two old codgers there, and it's like two old codgers that you find anywhere in the country here in America. We're here... The two old guys will be arguing about who played center field on the 1927 Cubs. And they'll yell and holler about it. Well, these two guys were arguing about the exact point, Matt, the exact point where the Red Sea parted. <laughs> yeah, they were. They were sitting there arguing about this. And I thought at first they were putting me on. I thought, you know, they're, they're doing this for my, uh, for my benefit. But no, actually... 
they were two local residents who were just indulging themselves in their favorite form of argument, which is arguing about the Bible and about where this happened and where that happened. And, of course, in almost every instance, they will tell you, uh, as uh, they, they discuss this thing, they'll say, well, of course, uh, nobody really knows. Uh, tradition says it's this way. But, uh, <laughs> and he smiles to let you know that it is a fact, however. This is where it happened. Don't let anybody tell you that it's a myth. This is the scene. Now, around the, the Dead Sea, you also have a couple of little uh, scary incidents like that. You know, right next to the Dead Sea is Sodom, where uh, famous Sodom and Gomorrah uh, operated. And uh, I'm driving through Sodom, and I thought to myself, you know, what a great place to open a Playboy club. Uh, you know. <laughs> or, you know, somehow I kind of like the, uh, the Gomorrah Hilton uh, would be kind of nice. I'd love to see this, because you know Gomorrah is right next to Sodom. It's kind of a, uh, perhaps you didn't know it, but Gomorrah was a suburb of of uh, Sodom. Did you know that? Yeah, well, one was, was like Darien and, uh, uh, <laughs> and Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we're driving past Sodom and Gomorrah, and I look out, and I see a couple of guys walking along, leading a donkey. And uh, I said to my guy, I says, is this the real Sodom? And he says, yeah, it's the real Sodom. And I look out again, and then he says to me, well, things aren't like they used to be. Not like the old days around here. But they'll pick up. All right, now let's get back to the Red Sea. Now, you know, you want to... you, you got to get the picture, see? Uh, this this sky, to begin with, uh, in this area, this is this is desert. Uh, it's uh, Unless you've ever been on a desert. You know, today I was talking to Ed Fitzgerald, who... Uh, I didn't know this, and uh, you might be interested in this, Lee... Uh, do you know that Ed Fitzgerald, during World War One, at one point in his uh, army career, was stationed in Palestine with the British forces in the area where T.H. Lawrence operated, or T.E. Lawrence, I'm sorry, where T.E. Lawrence operated. Did you know that? And he told me the interesting thing that I didn't know about this, uh, and that was right in this area. You see, uh, Lawrence made a couple of forays. For any of you who've seen Lawrence of Arabia... The country that I'm talking about is that country. Did you know that, Matt? This is the area that Lawrence operated in. And the railroad tracks that run just north of a lot, famous railroad that ran uh, from Egypt, uh, ran through uh, Saudi Arabia, from Cairo, uh, all the way up through Damascus. This was the railroad line that, that Lawrence cut in, in one of his famous... Uh, one of his famous raids and was one of the great strategic moves of World War One in that area. You probably uh, in Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Did you uh, read about that famous raid where they cut the railroad? Well, I saw those railroad tracks. By the way, in case you're interested, they're still there. The same tracks. And uh, Ed Fitzgerald was stationed in that area briefly during uh, World War One, and he said that they never heard of Lawrence during those days. He says that is to say. Uh, they didn't. He said uh, his particular unit, he said, of course, he's, he was famous later, and uh, rightly so. Uh, but he said at the time, the word Lawrence was a secret word. He says uh, he was kind of like an undercover agent. And they didn't want to, he says, apparently they didn't want to get out, get it out uh, that uh, that this man, this uh, British officer, was working with the Arabs. And so the word Lawrence, or the name Lawrence, was not known among the people in that area at that time. Uh, I ask a lot of uh, uh, are any of you interested in this, uh, the, the, the Lawrence legend in that area? Well, I ask a lot of the people around there, uh, around a lot, 
if anybody around that area still remembered or if there were any stories about Lawrence of Arabia, and believe me, they light up like Christmas trees when you start mentioning Lawrence. And they talk, and they'll, they'll come out, and they'll take you out to the beach, and they'll point, and they'll say, up over that hill that, uh, that one day uh, Lawrence's uh, um, uh, attacking Arab raiders came over this hill and came right down, and they show you over here, and there's, there's places where they went, and here's where they camped. Uh, here's where they hit this ship that came in. They were always hitting the shipping that was coming in on the Red Sea. They were cutting the supply lines that were bringing in the supplies up through the Red Sea to the German army and so on, and the Turkish army over in that area. And so it's all still there. And, and one thing about the desert sun, it preserves things. And they say that sometimes out in the desert there, uh, people will be going on a prospecting mission or they will be working uh, on, a, on the oil pipeline or something, and they will come across things that are absolutely perfectly preserved from World War I, uh, or maybe even earlier. They'll find weapons of the earlier Turkish wars. Uh, you know, the Turks invaded and occupied that area many years ago. And they will find things that are absolutely in mint condition that have been preserved. Well, all right, right down at the tip of this, this long, involved, kind of narrow, thin, truncated triangle lies this tiny settlement of Eilat, which just a couple of years ago was a military outpost. That's all it was. Uh, it was, a, it was a, a, a place where they were trying to guard the uh, seaway, the entranceway to Eilat, and that's all it was, just this, this little spot on the map that had a radar station and about four or five companies of infantry, and uh, that was about the extent of it, a couple of tanks. And now they built this tiny city right on the edge of the ocean, surrounded completely by Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and, of course, Egypt. And at night, let me describe what happens at night. It's very eerie. Uh, as the sun goes down, uh, the sun gets lower and lower over these mountains. And at a certain time of day, just about, I'd say, around 6.30 or 7 o'clock at night, just as the sun hits the edge of these mountains, almost like magic, all of a sudden, the entire ocean out in front of you turns a fantastic blood red. The whole ocean, from one end to the other, as far as you can see, it's blood red. Now, how and why it does this is a combination of the kind of sun that hits down through this mountain air and the reflection of that sun off the water and back down again on the water off these red hills that rim the ocean. And for maybe five or ten minutes, this sea is an absolute blood-red sea. You couldn't believe... And now, I'm not saying it's gold. It's not... It doesn't look like sun. For about five minutes, it looks like the water's red ink. Just like that. And that's why they call it the Red Sea. It's a, it's a wild sight. Uh, and then, then uh, as the sun goes down... And like all tropical areas, there is hardly any twilight. Uh, the sun drops practically instantly. Uh, one minute it's daylight, the next minute it's pow, it's night. Uh, you, you, you just see the sun go down, and the next instant it is dark. Now the sky over uh, the desert uh, is a sky like no sky you've ever seen. I've seen the sky from uh, the tropical jungles of Peru. Uh, I've seen the sky from Miami. I've seen the sky from... Uh, from Canada, I've seen the sky from Australia, I've seen the sky from uh, pretty nearly all around the world, but there is no sky, I'll guarantee you this, there is no sky like the sky you see in the African 
or the Arabian Desert. It is unbelievable. Fantastic. Uh, primarily because the air is so clear. Uh, there's no dust in the air. Uh, there's no smoke in the air. There's no humidity in the air to speak of. And so everything is like it's made out of crystal. And you look up over you, and you have the sense that you can almost reach up and touch the sky. You can, you can just about uh, reach up and pick stars right out of this, this black velvet that's just above you. And you can understand why somebody like Omar Khayyam would write the way Omar Khayyam wrote about uh, the sky and about the stars and the night. Uh, <laughs> a jug of wine, a loaf of bread, and thou beside me, singing in the wilderness. And you can understand this only really completely when you're there in the area of Persia, Saudi Arabia, and that, that unbelievable nighttime desert sky. It stretches up above you. Now, as that sky begins to, to, to turn on, an, an, another peculiar thing happens. Off to your left, a long line of tiny lights begin to appear along the shoreline to your left. Blue and green lights, just like that. It looks like a, like a little horizontal... Uh, Christmas tree just laying on its side. This is Aqaba. Aqaba is a city that belongs to Israel's enemy. And it lights up. It looks like it's right over there. It is. It's about 1,500 feet away. And the people in Eilat look over at Aqaba. And the people in Aqaba, you have the sense that they're looking over at Eilat, the lights of Eilat over here. And Aqaba just lies right around the edge of the Gulf over there. And it extends through Jordan, and just the edge of it goes into Saudi Arabia. And there it lays, right there, this city. And then you look off to your right, and you can see a couple of other lights off to your right over there on the shoreline. And there in Egypt. And there it is, this little horseshoe of light. And all four of these countries are at swords points, just like that. Just like, it's a very eerie feeling. And you walk through the night streets of Eilat, and they have these fluorescent lights hanging out over the streets. And you go in, and, and the, they, I went to this little restaurant. There's a restaurant called the Blue Fish there. Tiny restaurant. And it's known throughout Israel as one of the very few places in Israel where you can really get a good meal. Uh, I must say, for one thing, that the food is not the greatest that I've ever had in my life throughout Israel. But here, here is this little restaurant. It's about the size of the studio. That's about it, right here. And in, in, the, in this restaurant is this character who, who looks like a defranchised buccaneer. He, he looks like an out-of-work pirate. And he stands there in the middle of his floor, and there's five tables all around him. And they have fishnets hanging from the walls and glass balls, you know. And it's a kind of a strangely pathetic, uh, oddly uh, touching attempt to create a kind of sophisticated gaiety that just isn't quite gay that isn't quite sophisticated. It's as though, if you can imagine, in, in, in the Silver Dollar Saloon, in a Gary Cooper movie, uh, somebody had decided to uh, put a little sequins in the windows, you know, and hang, hang a few little tassels around on things, you know, try to make it look a little bit like, uh, like uh, a, a New York restaurant, something like that. And so they've hung a few of these little things, and I'll tell you, though, one thing they do serve, the greatest seafood I've ever had in my life. It comes right out of the Red Sea down there. And it's fish like you couldn't conceive of here. These are all exotic tropical fish of one kind or another. Well, all right. We sit down there and we drink the Israel wine. We eat the fish. And it's all done beautifully. And it's just... 
and the, the people all sitting around, there's sobers with their shirts ripped open, and a couple of other guys who who have drifted in from the desert with high boots, oil prospectors, and everyone shoveling in the shrimp. And we go back out into the night, and we drift on down the street about uh, four or five hundred feet, and here's a Moroccan coffee shop. I mean, it's truly Moroccan because a lot of the people that came to Israel in the early founding days of it were North Africans. And so you'll find Moroccan, you'll, you'll find Moroccan, you'll find Algerian coffee shops. And I mean, they're really Moroccan. After all, this is not the village you're in. This is the real thing. And so a couple of swarthy Moroccans are sitting there waiting for you to come in and drink their Moroccan coffee, which is vaguely scented. There are about uh, 10 or 20 different types of Moroccan coffee. And there are two types of Moroccan coffee that I know specifically, Matt, that are illegal. I mean, really are illegal. They're flavored with... <laughs> They're flavored with stuff that if you ever drank the coffee, you would be floating around the seating for about a week and a half. And so you sit there quietly and you sip your Moroccan coffee that is scented with some kind of strange myrrh or incense. And you sip that and the, and the jukebox is, is playing Moroccan music. And outside is that golden, velvet, strange, soft, ethereal night and the lights of Aqaba stretching off into the distance. And you come out, and a jeep goes by. It's got three soldiers in it with Thompson submachine guns over their shoulders into the darkness. And the next morning, oh, boy, let me tell you about this. The next morning, I wake up, and uh, I, I, I throw back the curtains in the room. And my, my room looked right out over the Red Sea. I throw back the three curtains, and pow, like that. And there, blue, green little touches of silver is the sea itself. It's about six o'clock in the morning. I get up, I go down and I have a little I have a little breakfast and I go wandering out and I am about to go skin diving in the Red Sea for the first time. Now the sea itself, the beach itself I should say, is uh not really very impressive. It's pebbled. Uh it's uh, it's kind of half sand, a little pebbly. But as you wade into the water the, the instant you get in this water, you know that this water is different from any seawater that you've ever waded in. To begin with, it's as clear, well, it's, it's as clear as the clearest glass. Absolutely, frighteningly clear. In fact, so much so, uh, that, that there is a danger that's, that comes from that clear water down there, and I'll tell you about that later on. As you wade in, you wade in backwards. Now, for those of you who have never skin dived, there's several ways of doing it. There's the aqualung, of course, then there's snorkeling. Uh, in this case, we were aqualung. And that we wade, you wade in backwards. And as you wade in backwards, the water starts coming up, and it comes up very, rather quickly there. Uh, it, uh, the, the bottom slopes off quickly, because remember, you're in the mountains. Uh, this is not a low island situation like uh, Jones Beach. It's, it's mountainous, so this is very deep. This thing slants away quickly. And so you start wading out, and now you're about waist high, and you just let yourself go back. You just sort of drift back, and you turn over, and you spin, and you are now on your stomach, and you dive under, and you start gliding down. At first, you're in water that's maybe six or seven feet deep, and then suddenly it slants away, and off it goes, down, down, down. And the sand under you, it suddenly changes to sand. It stops being pebble, and it becomes sand. And the sand looks almost exactly like sugar. It's so white. In fact, the sand is so white that when the sun is coming down from above you and hitting it at the right angle, it actually hurts your eyes uh, in, the, in the diver's mask. The sun is, uh, is so bright on that fantastic white sand. 
And almost immediately, uh, as the bottom slants away and goes down and down and down, you look ahead of you, and you can see the shadowy sea getting deeper and deeper and deeper. The, the ground slants away at almost a 30-degree angle, sort of slants down, and you see these great coral reefs rising higher and higher as the water gets deeper and deeper. And then, all of a sudden, you're in the middle of this unbelievable forest. Now, for those of you who saw the movie uh, and have seen really good skin-diving movies, uh, I don't have to tell you much about that, except that the, to experience it is a totally different thing than to see it in the movies itself, because you feel the water. Uh, you feel all this water moving above and around you, and you're, you're not in the water more than, oh, I'd say three or four minutes, and you begin to have a completely, well, I suppose the word should be an other-world feeling. It's as though you don't really exist anymore, and yet you exist more than you've ever existed before. Now, if you can imagine this paradox... This is really what happens. Your body sort of melts away. You have no weight. That's the first thing that happens. And you have a sense of almost total, absolute freedom, which, by the way, is dangerous. Uh, there is a French word for it, which translated means the rapture of the depths. Uh, you, you begin to have this peculiar exhilaration, and many a skin diver is killed because of that. Uh, he does things, uh, he behaves in such a way and quite often forgets totally where he is and ultimately uh, uh, finds himself in deep trouble because of this rapture that you begin to experience. But as you go down lower and lower, uh, the first thing that hit me was I had never been in water where the underwater life was anything like this. Uh, I'm talking about the variety of the fish life under this water. And it's all hanging in crystal. No sense of water at all, at all, in this place. Uh, and that's one of the peculiar dangers about it, too. There's absolutely no sense of being in water. It's as though you're in some kind of melted glass. I don't know how to describe it, really. It's not exactly like air. It's as though something somehow has suspended all animation. And all you can hear is the, is the, is the roaring in your ears. You hear the roaring of the, of the aqualung and, and the, the, the water pressure, and you just... And that's it. And even that, after a few minutes, you forget completely about that. And, and uh, I'm down, I'm not down maybe five minutes when this great purple fish with the long, thin, yellow fins came drifting by. Big, heavy fish. He drifted right by. Big red eyes. He looked at me and he drifted on past. And he looked at me just as if I was another fish. You know, no, no, fright, just drifted past. And I'm drifting around, spinning slowly spinning. And then a whole school of angelfish. You've seen angelfish? They go past in the V formation. And down below me is this enormous coral cave that just stretches down and down in. And the man that I'm skin diving with is a bearded Israeli. A man who, by the way, a few years ago was in the world headlines. Do you remember a guy named Rafi Nelson? a few years ago, who was caught in the Suez Canal trying to make it through in a one-man boat <laughs> in an Israeli canoe. Well, this is the guy, big bearded guy, and, and he's, he's drifting alongside him. I mean, both of us are, are skin diving, just moving along. And, and we began to, to explore these reefs. Of course, he'd been down there 20,000 times before, and he's taking me to these various caves. And then he points, look, 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 he's pointing, and drifting out of a, of a, of a coral reef 
uh, a kind of ring of coral, a wreath, really a wreath of coral, yellow and green and orange coral, came this fantastic barracuda, great big barracuda, about four feet long. He just drifted. You could see those gleaming silver teeth. He just drifted past, and his big goggle eyes, he moved on past us, fluttered around us, gave us another look, and poof. You just see his tail goes, poof, he moves. And down below, he says, look, 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 down below, he's pointing. And down below us, about, oh, I'd say uh, the water now is possibly uh, 40 feet deep, something like that, maybe. And absolutely crystal clear, with just a touch of green and yellow about it. And directly below us, he says, look, 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 look. And we see this eel crawling along, just boom, boom, boom. He's about eight, nine feet long, a big eel. It's moving along through the, through the, uh, through the coral. And we continue to move, drifting slowly and spinning up and down. And all the while, Rafi is taking pictures. He's got this underwater camera. We're drifting up and down. And above us, once in a while, I'd turn, I'd look above, and I could see that water clipping green and silver higher. And you could see the sun above. And down we go, drifting on and on. Well, you lose all sense of time. You lose all sense of place. That, too, is dangerous. I, I can't tell you how long we were doing this. I can only tell you that we must have drifted about maybe a mile under the sea and along that great reef of uh, coral. And all of a sudden, Rafi goes like this. He drifts up past me. He's trying to get my attention. He's drifting past me, see. He goes, he makes a triangle like that. He points ahead. Triangle. Triangle. And I say, huh? I, I shrug my shoulders. What do you mean? He goes like that. Triangle. So I start going for He pushes me back. He's making another triangle. And I said, what, what? And then he says, triangle, triangle. And he makes his mouth... And, of course, nothing but bubbles come out. Triangle, triangle. And it suddenly hit me. You know what he's saying? Pyramid. Egypt. He is saying, look out. That next reef is right across the line. And I drift back and forth, and I could see there's a big shadowy reef. And you could see a few barracuda drifting in and out. You see a school of angel fish going across the Israeli-Egyptian border. And I'm drifting around. And suddenly I get this peculiar image, you know. Sometime, someplace, there will be, there will be a barricaded reef. Can you see it now? A pillbox underwater to get underwater skin divers who dare to cross the surface to go through and above and around the borders of this country guarded by barracudas, trained barracudas. And about 20 minutes later, both of us are up on the shore there at the shaking the water off and taking the equipment off. And I said, was that? He says, yeah. <laughs> he says, that was. And I said, is it dangerous? He just looked at me. He said, well, we lost three of them last month. And he'd heard from them since. And the sun hung up over us there and the great red hills moved on, marched toward the horizon. Ah, to be skin-diving tonight in the Red Sea. Do you want to hear more about this tomorrow? Huh? Do you want to hear about riding in the Galilee? Well, do you or don't you? Don't just look. Do you or don't you? All right. All right.